Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. V is for the Velvet Underground. It most certainly is. Before we go any further, Bob, I've got to say that uh, if you or indeed anybody else listening to this podcast mm. hears some banging downstairs, yeah, it's um, Sting and Midjour. Really? Yeah. No, no. Well, no. They're locked in the cellar. Oh, right. But it was, well, they were passing the house last night and I just yeah. saw them and I just thought, well, why not? Well, you just grabbed them, did you? Off the just street. grabbed them. Me yeah. and Chase dragged them and put them in the cellar. Wow. Um, but Midjour, he, he was the one in uh, Slick, wasn't he? No, he was in uh, Mungo Mary and Midge. Was You're he? getting confused here, mate. Right, okay. Yeah. I always get them two mixed yeah. up. Anyway, so if you do hear any talking, mm. it's Sting and Mary, yeah. Mungo and Midge. Or if you hear any banging, it's just Mary, Mungo and Midge. That's right. <laughs> That's right in the cupboard. Anyway, the out of that. been there all night. Anyway, let's get on to the Velvet Underground. The foundations for what would become the Velvet Underground were laid in late 1964. Singer, songwriter, guitarist Lou Reed had performed with a few short-lived garage bands and had worked as a songwriter for Pickwick Records. Reed described his tenure there as being a poor man's Carol King. Wow. He wrote some great stuff in there, didn't he? Like did? The Ostrich oh, and all that. The Ostrich is great. We'll get yeah. on to that in a bit, I think. Yeah. So, Reed met John Cale, a Welshman who had moved to the States to study classical music upon securing a Leonard Bernstein scholarship. Cale had worked with experimental composers John Cage, Cornelius Cardew and Lamont Young and had performed with Young's Theatre of Eternal Music, though... Crucially, he was also interested in rock music. Of course he was. Young's use of extended drones would be a profound influence on the band's early sound. Kale was pleasantly surprised to discover that Reed's experimentalist tendencies were similar to his own. Reed sometimes used alternative guitar tunings to create a droning sound. The pair rehearsed and performed together. Their partnership and shared interests built the path towards what would later become the Velvet Underground. Indeed. So, uh, here we go then. Reed's first group with Kale was The Primitives, a short-lived group assembled to issue budget price recordings and support an anti-dance single penned by Reed called The Ostrich, uh, to which Cale added a viola passage. Reed and Cale recruited Sterling Morrison, a college classmate of Reed's at Syracuse University, as a replacement for Walter Di Maria, who'd been a third member of the Primitives. Reed and Morrison both played guitar, Cale played viola, keyboards and bass, and Angus McLeese joined on percussion to complete the initial four-member unit. This quartet was first called the Warlocks and then the Falling Spikes. There were loads of bands called the Warlocks. The Grateful Dead were the Warlocks, weren't they, for ages? They were, but the Falling Spikes, that's a good name (laughs) for the band. Great name, that. Uh, The Velvet Underground by Michael Lee was a contemporary mass-market paperback about the secret sexual subculture of the early 60s. Kale's mate and Dream Syndicate associate Tony Conrad showed it to the group and McLeese made a suggestion to adopt the title as the band's name. According to Reed and Morrison, the group liked the name, considering it evocative of underground cinema and fitting as Reed had already written Venus in Furs, a song inspired by Leopold von Sacken-Massach's book of the same name, which dealt with masochism. Uh, the band immediately and unanimously adopted the Velvet Underground as its new name in November 1965. The newly named Velvet Underground rehearsed and performed in New York City, the music was generally much more relaxed than it would later become. Cale described this era later as reminiscent of beat poetry, with McLeese playing gentle pitter-and-patter rhythms behind the drone. 
In July 1965, Reed, Cale and Morrison recorded a demo tape at their Ludlow Street loft without McLeese because he refused to be tied down to a schedule and would only turn up to band practice sessions when he wanted to, which isn't ideal if you're going to be with a group of people in a band. Not really, no. And also, of course, he was quite lucky because I don't think particularly drum machines have been invented by them, apart from those that you used to get on, like, the Wurlitzer organs. And yes, stuff. that's different, yes. Okie dokie. When he briefly returned to Britain, Cale attempted to give a copy of the tape to Marianne Faithful, hoping she would pass it on to Mick Jagger, lead singer of the Rolling Stones. Nothing ever came of this, but the demo was eventually released on the 1995 box set, Peel Slowly and See. That's intriguing, isn't it? Yeah. What might have happened. A manager and music journalist, Al Aronovitz, arranged for the group's first paying gig, $75, which is about $600 in modern money, to play at Summit High School in New Jersey, opening for the middle class with a Y instead of an I. When they decided to take the gig, McLeese abruptly left the group, protesting what he considered a sellout. He was also unwilling to be told when to stop and start playing. <laughs> Which is, why would you be in a band, eh? Uh, Morrison later said Angus was in it for the art. i tell you what, I also read a, a statement whereby he would turn up late for a gig. So say he was quarter of an hour late for the gig yes. and the band had already started. When the band went off, he would carry on for 15 minutes <laughs> just to put his shift in. That's not being in a band. That's being obtuse. It is. God, love us. McLeese was replaced by Mo Tucker. Hurrah! Hey. The younger sister of Morrison's friend, Jim Tucker. Tucker's playing style was rather unusual. She generally played standing up rather than seated and had an abbreviated drum setup of tom-toms, snare and an upturned bass drum using mallets often as drumsticks and rarely using cymbals. She hated cymbals. But also, if you think about it, the the usual way of playing drums, I can play drums badly like Mm. I can play everything else. But when you hit a cymbal, you normally hit the bass drum with your foot. Yeah, yeah. Now, she she didn't use her feet. No. And so she couldn't really do it that well. So I think that probably did help her have a little bit of a um, a downer on cymbals in the first place. Just a bit of drum uh, drum speak. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Just bamboozled me there, mate. Yeah. Uh, when the band asked her to do something unusual, she turned a bass drum on its side and played standing up. After her drums were stolen from one club, she replaced them with garbage cans brought in from outside. Her rhythms, at once simple and exotic, became a vital part of the group's music, despite Kale's initial objections to the presence of a female drummer. Oh, dear. <gasps> Uh, the group earned a regular paying gig at Café Bizarre and gained an early reputation as a promising ensemble. So, on to Andy Warhol and the Exploding Plastic Inevitable, 1966. So, in 1965, after being introduced to the Velvet Underground by filmmaker Barbara Rubin, Andy Warhol became the band's manager and suggested they use the German-born singer Nico on several songs. Warhol's reputation helped the band gain a higher profile. He helped them secure a recording deal with MGM's Verve Records with himself as nominal producer and gave the Velvets free reign over the sound they made. During their stay with Andy Warhol, the band became part of his multimedia roadshow, Exploding Plastic Inevitable, which combined Warhol's films with the band's music, which made use of minimalist devices such as drones. Warhol included the band with his show in an effort to use rock as part of a larger interdisciplinary artwork based around performance. Ooh, get him. They played shows for several months in New York City, then travelled throughout the States and Canada until its last instalment in May 1967. During a short period in September 66, when Kale was ill, the avant-garde musician Henry Flint and Richard Mishkin, who played in Reed's first group at university, took turns to cover for him. The show included 16mm film projections by Warhol, combined with a stroboscopic light show designed by Danny Williams. Because of the punishing lights, the band took to wearing sunglasses on stage. Early promo posters referred to the group as the erupting plastic inevitable. This soon changed to the exploding plastic inevitable. Right. So we're on to the uh, 
their debut album now, The Velvet Underground and Nico 1967. We are. So at Warhol's insistence, Nico sang with the band on three songs on their debut album, The Velvet Underground and Nico. The album was recorded primarily in Scepter Studios in New York City during the April of 1966. But for reasons unclear, some tunes were re-recorded at TTG Studios in LA along with the new one, Sunday Morning, with Tom Wilson producing. Yeah, so the album was released by Verve Records the following year in March 1967. The album cover is famous for its Warhol design, a yellow banana sticker with a peel slowly and C printed near the tip. Those who did remove the banana skin found a pink peeled banana beneath. Oh, they did. There is actually another cover of it, isn't there? Which features a uh, a photograph um, uh, taken by somebody else, but it was uh, used in the Warhol backdrop. Yeah, that's right. And he objected to it and put a kind of an injunction on it. Yeah. Some of the albums got out and guess who's got one? Oh, come on, have you? Oh. You kept that quiet. You haven't oh. mentioned that before. I'll show you that, mate. Right. 11 songs showcase the Velvet's dynamic range, veering from the pounding attacks of I'm Waiting for the Man and Run, 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 the droning Venus in Furs and Heroin, the chiming Celestial Sunday Morning to the very quiet Femme Fatale and the tender I'll Be Your Mirror, as well as Warhol's own favourite song of the group, All Tomorrow's Parties. It's a killer. You'd have to say, mm. and the overall sound was propelled by Reed and Nico's deadpan vocals, Kale's droning viola, bass and keyboards, Reed's experimental avant-garde guitar, Morrison's often R&B or country-influenced guitar, and Tucker's simple but steady and tribal-sounding beat with sparse use of cymbals. A technique used on many songs was a droned strum, an eighth-note rhythm guitar style used by Lou Reed. Although Kale was the band's usual bassist, if he switched to viola or keyboards, Morrison would normally play bass. Despite his proficiency on the instrument, Morrison actually hated playing the bass. Conversely, some songs that had Reed and Morrison playing their usual guitars with Kale on viola or keyboards with nobody at all playing bass. So the album was released on the 12th of March 1967 after a lengthy delay by Verve and reached number 171 on Billboard magazine's Top 200 chart. The album was redistributed at nearly the same time as Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in June 67, as we know, of course, was Bowie's debut album. That's right. Uh, which hindered the release. Regarding MGM Verve's delay in releasing the album, Warhol's business manager, Paul Morrissey, once offered the following. Verve didn't know what to do with the Velvet Underground and Nico because it was so peculiar. They didn't release it for almost a year. Tom Wilson at Verve only brought the album from me because of Nico. He saw no talent in Lou Reed. That's interesting, isn't it? It really it is, is a little bit, yeah. Okay, so we're on to the next album now, and which actually I do prefer this to the first album, White Light, White Heat, 1968, after which John Cale leaves the mm. band. We're not going to go into all of the we're Velvet not, Underground history, are we? I mean, there's the Velvet Underground, the third album, and the, the, the great thing about the Velvet Underground is that each different album kind of uh, was hugely influential in its own way. Yeah. So the avant-garde of the first one, the noise of the second yeah. one, that, that just absolutely, Huge. you know... Uh, phenomenal sound mm. it was like almost like a kind of a weird wall of noise wasn't it that they yeah, created you know. and the third album almost kind of created indie yeah, yeah. You all know, if you look at all those kind of postcard bands and all of those, yeah. a lot of them are hugely influenced mm. by the Velvet Underground's third album and indeed Loaded, which we'll talk about yeah. in a short while. So we know that Doug Yule joined the Velvet Underground in 1969 at the same time, don't we? Uh, before work on their third album started, Kale was replaced by Doug Yule of the Boston band The Grass Menagerie, who'd been a close associate of the band. Newell, a native New Yorker, had moved to Boston to attend university as a theatre major, but he left the programme after one year to continue playing music. 
Yule had first seen the Velvets perform at a student event at Harvard University in Cambridge in early 1968. And when the band played at the Boston Tea Party later that year, the band stayed at Yule's apartment on River Street, which he happened to be renting from their road manager, Hans Osager. It was during this period that Morrison heard Yule playing guitar in his apartment and he mentioned to Reed that Yule was practising guitar and was improving very quickly. It was following this discussion that led to a phone call from Steve Sesnick inviting Yule to meet with the band at Max's Kansas City in New York City in October 68 to discuss joining the Velvets before two upcoming shows in Ohio. OK, upon meeting Reed, Sesnick and Morrison at Max's, Yule was asked to handle bass and organ duties in the band and he would soon contribute vocals as well. So Lou Reed uh, actually leaves the Velvet Underground, yeah. doesn't he? So they recorded Loaded, mm. but he leaves before it comes out. That's right. Disillusioned with the lack of progress the band was making and facing pressure by manager Steve Sesnick, Reed decided to quit the band during the last week of the Max's Kansas City shows in the August of 1970. Although Reed had informed Tucker, who was attending the show but was not playing with the band, because of her pregnancy, that he planned to leave the group on his last evening. He didn't tell Morrison or Yule. In a 2006 interview, Yule said Sesnick waited until one hour before the band was scheduled to take to the stage the following night before notifying him that Lou Reed was not coming. Quote, I was expecting Lou to show up. I thought he was late. Yule blamed Sesnick for Reed's departure. Ah, OK. I did actually try and interview Steve Sesnick some years ago, having talked to Doug Yule, and uh, I couldn't go with him at all. Really? <laughs> yeah. Line low. Mm, definitely. So just continuing the Yule quote here, Sesnick had engineered Lou's leaving the group. He and Lou had a relationship where Lou had depended on him for moral support, and he trusted him, and Sesnick basically said, screw you. It must have been hard for Lou to hear that, because he depended on him, so he quit. While Loaded was finalised and mixed, it had yet to be mastered and was not yet released by Atlantic until November of that year. Reed often said he was completely surprised when he saw Loaded in the stores. He also said, quote, I left them to their album full of hits that I made. That's really it is a great right. album. I mean, it obviously is. it's uh, got, you know, it's got all those great pop songs like, you know, Cool It Down and all that. Well, rock and Roll is just going Rock great, and Roll is on there, which is just, and, and Sweet Jane, yeah, they're just yeah, two nailed on classics, yeah. aren't we? So, the Bowie connection, as we know already, that mm. uh, so Ken Pitt went over to New York, didn't he? Yes. This is great, actually. So, I mean, it was uh, talking to Kevin Can of Any Day Now, which will feature heavily in a moment. Mm. Um, talking to Kevin not so long ago, he told me of all of the stuff that he'd been aware of uh, that belonged to Ken Pitt. Yeah. Obviously, Ken died not that long ago. Mm. And uh, one thing that he did mention was the fact that Ken Pitt had gone to New York, we knew this, uh, with an intention of bringing the Velvet Underground over uh, to do a gig, and he wanted to represent him. Yeah. And he famously, as we've covered, he went for a meal with Andy Warhol, didn't he? Yeah. And then Andy Warhol said nothing all night and got up and left Kem to pay the bill. He did. And so, but the only thing that he came away from that meeting with uh, Andy Warhol with was the acetate of the first album. Yeah. As we know, he brought that back, gave it to David Bowie. We'll get into all that in a short while. Uh, but the uh, the amazing thing was that he actually found um, photocopies of passports, Kevin Kahn, ah. in, in Ken Pitt's um, uh, ownership, uh, all just with the intention of bringing the Velvet Underground over to play at the Roundhouse. Wow, that's fascinating. Isn't it? I wonder how close that, well, it must have been very close. It must have very nearly made it. It was close enough for Ken to start getting involved in yeah. the paperwork. When when uh, Kevin can tell me that, that blew my wow. mind. That, that was really, really amazing. Yeah, remarkable. Okay. So he, he failed in that, didn't he? Yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, obviously, Bowie loved the record. And we should mention, too, that, this you know, 1967, Bowie's first album came out. It wasn't like Bowie was doing Velvets almost independently, was it? He hadn't arrived at the same style that they had. He was, as we know, doing that kind of whimsical musical stuff. Well, he'd been, obviously, he'd been the mod as well. 
well, hadn't yeah. he? You know, he tried lots of different things, and there was Anthony Newley flitting around there and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it was at the same time that the Laughing Gnome came out mm. that he was listening to the Velvet Underground. Yeah. And also, there was that footage, was it on Was it on Finding Fame? You know, I watch these things so many times that you just kind of merge into one. Uh, but where Carlos Alomar is playing the chord structure to Laughing Gnome and said it's basically mm. waiting for the man. Yeah, yeah, which we've got covered as well, haven't we? Yeah. You know. But, I mean, how, how the polar opposites of the musical <laughs> spectrum, aren't they? There is no doubt about no, it. No, how you get from one to the other is just beyond me. But you mentioned the Riot Squad there, and yeah. that was that was the... Because, obviously, again, you see, we know that Bowie would keep plates spinning. It'd be mm. in one band, mm. and he'd go off and play with another. Or he'd be in one band, an audition for another, looking to get out of the Manish, yeah. Manish Boys, or whatever it was at that particular point in time. Uh, so he was always hedging his bets. Yeah, he was. He, he was absolutely taken with the Velvet Underground, but you couldn't really tell from the music he was making. No, that's the thing. So he had a look around for a kind of malleable band, mm. which proved to be the Riot Squad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm always fascinated by that thing because people come to the Velvet Underground at different stages in their life. And generally, you know, British culture came around to it in the early 70s, didn't they, with glam and everything. But to hear it, almost as it was just after it had been made, must have been remarkable for Bowie. Well, Bowie did say, didn't he? He said, I was the first person in Britain to have that record, mm. you know, and so the fir- I'm the first person, therefore, to hear it. And it did blow him away. But of course, I mean, the cliche about that first album is that, you know, it sold a thousand copies or whatever, yeah. but it, it made a thousand people go out and form a band. That That is the yes. cliche that is aligned to it. Yeah, that's the story. But, Which- you know, I mean... you. you you don't really see it being heralded anywhere, apart from obviously the people who got it and it did really hit with. Mm. But it just didn't kick in, did it? it Not it at all. It wasn't mentioned. It would look retrospectively as an amazing album, but mm. it took ages to catch fire, didn't it, it? It was ignored and certainly ignored by all the music papers. The critics just either ignored it completely or dismissed it in a couple of sentences because they didn't understand it. Yeah. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Okay, so we are now going back to Kevin Can. So it's a book, David Bowie, Any Day Now, The London Years, 1947 to 1974, and it's just an amazing book. We've, we've bigged it up loads, but you can't you can't really um, <laughs> expect to get to grips with David Bowie without this. We would have been lost on this particular oh, podcast totally. without this book. It's just been an amazing uh, godsend for us, and I just recommend that you get it, because even if you've not got any uh, particular kind of uh, job to do on David Bowie, and let's face it now we've done this A to Z of David Bowie <laughs> podcast. There's nothing left to be done. We did a section about his driver, for God's sake. So, uh, but just get it and enjoy it because it is just yeah. an absolute masterpiece and a, and a Bible. Okay, so we're looking now at David Bowie and uh, and his involvement, uh, his brief involvement, albeit with the Riot Squad. We are okay. So we're looking at the Monday, the 13th of March. Now, uh, entry 1967. All right, so uh, David's application to become a member of the Performing Rights Society is accepted. In the afternoon, David rehearses with Quintet the Riot Squad at the Swan Public House in Tottenham, North London, heavily influenced by the Velvet Underground and Nico album Pitt had brought him from the US a few months previously. David is keen to investigate new avenues of performance which draw on pop art and a tougher musicality. He's joined the group in an unofficial capacity but has not informed either Pitt or his friends who'd been in the buzz. Uh, David is using the period between the departure of Hor- Ralph Horton, of course, uh, who would never have allowed him to experiment in this way, and his formal signing with Pitt to test out ideas often discussed with previous band colleagues. The Riot Squad is a ready-made unit. As such, David has no responsibility for wages and no long-term commitments to consider. For their part, the band members are aware that David is pursuing a solo career and that his liaison will be short-lived. So, fair enough. 
Like David, the Riot Squad are also at a crossroads, not least because they are still reeling from the impact of the violent death of their champion, Joe Meek, just six weeks previously. Mm. Thus, David's arrival in their midst, full of ideas for presentation and propelled by the new music being created across the Atlantic by the Velvet Underground, brings a new direction and purpose. Despite this association with a new set of musicians, David spends the evening with former member of the Buzz, John Eager, at the Cockney Pride, a large subterranean pub in Piccadilly Circus. There, they bump into producer Mike Vernon, with whom David discusses a number of ideas he has for future projects. Yeah, so uh, just a bit of a bio here is needed on the Riot Squad. So in, uh, it's carried on in uh, Kevin's book here. Formed in London in 1964, the Riot Squad were initially managed and produced by British pop impresario Larry Page and was stablemates of David's at Pi Records, to whom they were signed between 1965 and 1967. The group's first three singles featured Jimi Hendrix, experienced drummer Mitch Mitchell, Deep Purple keyboard player John Lord was also fleetingly a member. By the time they met David, the lineup consisted of Rob Evans on sax and flute, Brian Croke Preble on bass, vocals, Rod Davis guitar, Derek Roll on drums, and George Butcher on keyboards. I love that. Derek Roll on drums, oh, no. drum roll. Uh, I'm just. Uh... Crap like that tickles me. That was brilliant. Sorry, Bob. That's fine. Uh, Joe Meek incidentally produced the Riot Squad's final single for Pi, Gotta Be a First Time, which was released just after his death on the 3rd of February 1967. So moving on now to the 28th of March, uh, David appears on stage with the Riot Squad at Kodak Social Club, Eastman Hall, Kodak Sports Ground in North London suburb of Harrow. Augmenting their flashing blue police light at David's suggestion, the group added hand-painted props, extravagant makeup, and bright clothes clothing to their stage show. The set includes an instrumental take on Silly Boy Blue, a version of Lou Reed's Waiting for the Man, and a new song called Little Toy Soldier. David invites John Eager to meet him at the venue, but he's unable to attend. So, uh, moving on to Wednesday, 5th of April now, 1967, David connives with engineer Gus Dudgeon to make use of downtime at Decca Studios, and with the Riot Squad records the key three tracks from their new stage show, Little Toy Soldier, Silly Boy Blue, this is the third version he recorded, and I'm Waiting for the Man. Pitt, Vernon and the former members of The Buzz aren't informed. That session with David was all done on the quiet. It was a bit hush-hush, confirmed Dudgeon in 1991. On the Velvet Underground cover, David's harmonica is reversed on tape and the sax is played by a Riot Squad's Bob Evans. Dudgeon supplies laughter and vocal sound effects. Silly Boy Blue is an instrumental recorded for a routine David and the Riot Squad are preparing for their live set. Little Toy Soldier has the same musical arrangement as the Velvet Underground's Venus in Furs and some of Reed's original lyrics. When we recorded it, the song originally finished on the line and he beat her to death, said Dudgeon in 1991. One day I was playing around with a vast selection of sound effects at Decca and added a final section. I'll tell you what, there's a mate of mine, I have got a mate, um, and he's called The Shend. Yes. Okay, and so he's in the cravats he's, and it was in the very things. Yeah. Uh, but he had a, he found somewhere in amongst a load of old artwork a, a poster for the Riot Squad. Really? An original flyer, which is worth a fortune. Oh. And, I, and, and I think he was looking round to see what he could do with it. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, wow. blimey. I, I was very, very tempted. Yeah, what are the chances of that, eh? Uh, so moving on now to Thursday, the 13th of April, OK? Uh, David appears at Tiles Club on Oxford Street as a member of the Riot Squad. As will be the format for David's appearances with the group over the coming weeks, his name is not mentioned. In fact, he's listed as Toy Soldier when the lineup is featured in Jackie Magazine's July issue, which is great. Uh, for the Tiles show, David recycles a green corduroy jacket, last worn in December 63 in his final days with the Conrads, by adding blue lines himself using cartridge ink. 
The shows with the Riot Squad allow David to investigate a number of exaggerated makeup techniques, mimes and image manipulation he has not had the opportunity to try out in a live context. The end result, as a promotional leaflet reveals, owes as much to the pantomime characters David had seen at the Palladium the previous month as to the rock-orientated likes of Sid Barrett on stage with the Pink Floyd. The Riot Squad are more than happy to follow David's lead and will continue with this flamboyant image when David moves on after a few weeks and a handful of appearances with them. One show with the Riot Squad is a regular Radio London-sponsored event at the Downbeat Club. Uh, in uh, Malden, in Essex, the DJ compo was Dave Cash. It's great, because also on the same page, it might even be the same leaflet oh. forward slash poster that uh, Shen had there. Uh, but it, it's just great, because they have they've got big flower glasses on and uh, the face is painted up and all that. So trying to get, you know, obviously David's got this uh, pretty straightforward thing going on where, with his first album, mm. and this is just the alter ego. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it, it's, it, this is a, a learning curve for him, because it's the same, using mime and kind of like stagecraft and techniques... Right. That would come to the fore, and makeup, obviously, yeah. with Ziggy, when, when it all kind of fell together and he put all of the component parts together. Yeah, of course, theatrical rock. The great thing also about this poster is there is some wording on here underneath the little tree, and it says, one day we will live next door to you and your lawn will die, which is what uh, Lemmy used to say in Motorhead, wasn't it? Oh, was it really? Yeah, live next door to us, we'll, uh, we'll, your lawn will die. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's really great. Okay, so um, we're done now with the Riot Squad. And we that, are. You know, I mean, that does prove that Bowie was like, he was he was going off on the Velvet Underground tip as well, and whilst keeping the plate spinning with what he thought would be a more kind of uh, substantial career, which was his first album, yeah, which I'm, proved not to be. In the middle of all this, on the 14th of April, The Laughing Gnome came out, so... Yeah. There you go, chalk and cheese. It really is. Okay, so we're moving on now to another section in Kevin Can's book. So we're looking here at page 203, Bobbert. Oh, yes, let me just turn. Leaf through here yep. like one does. Okay, so the 27th of January now, 1971? Yes, exactly that, Bob. Wednesday, 27th of January, 1971. In the late morning, David and Oberman arrive in New York for a four-day stay. The record company arranged for him to have a room in the most American of hostelries, the Holiday Inn, said journalist Ed Kellerler, in 1977. Within hours of arriving in Manhattan, David had found his way to Nat Sherman's, the connoisseur's tobacco shop, for some thin cigars, was browsing in Times Square record shops for discs unavailable in in England, a clerk in King Carroll's recognised him and David was genuinely astounded, spent an afternoon studying the paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and was scouring the Eastside Antique Stores for Object Dart. What a lovely day. Absolutely. <laughs> but we should mention the Oberman there you mentioned. Ron Oberman, of course, from Mercury, isn't it? At he that is. point. Uh, yeah. So it uh, continues here. So 27th of January, 71. Tonight there is a storm like icy wind, but David ventures out with Mercury publicity chief Paul Nelson to a Greenwich Village coffee house to catch a performance by the folk singer Tim Hardin. He fails in an attempt to make contact with Hardin backstage afterwards but is impressed with the venue. I'd like to play a club like this, David tells Nelson. I know I don't have a work permit, but maybe I could do a guest set later in the week. Soon after his arrival, Ed Kelleher plays David the recently released Velvet Underground album, Loaded. David is determined to catch the band live since they're playing a residency at the Electric Circus in Manhattan, but this is the reconstituted lineup with main man Lou Reed replaced by Doug Yule and viola player John Cale Longon. David doesn't realise this is a new lineup. Afterwards, I waited at the backstage door and I was banging on it. And Lou comes in and I went on about how great I thought it was. And at the end of the conversation, he says, Look, actually, buddy, my name's Doug Yule. I thought, Oh no, I was so embarrassed because I thought I'd been talking to Lou Reed for about 15 minutes. It's such a famous story. I love yeah. that. So, moving on a few years now, as we know, David Bowie plays homage to Velvet Underground on the back sleeve of Hunky Dory, doesn't he? Underneath uh, the track listing for Queen Bitch. He does. 
And of course, uh, Lou Reed did come over. He played his first show with Bowie, Save the Whale, at the Royal Festival Hall. Yeah. And uh, Lou Reed was tipsy, to say the least. Um, but of course, and, and we know that uh, staples in Davy Bowie's live set were White Light, White Heat. And waiting for the man that's as well. Right. Okay, so um, th- that's the uh, the actual real cut and thrust of the Velvet Underground's influence on David Bowie. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go, if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. I'm Danny Fortson, and this is a podcast about Silicon Valley in eight parts. Can I, can I tell you something interesting that I've noticed about San Francisco? Yes, please. That's a vortex. I think she's a sociopathic liar and a narcissist. Which CEO is more Jesus-like or going to run for president? That software is very powerful. You know, is it more or less powerful than bioterrorism or a nuclear weapon? It's a rip-roaring ride through the present and a look at the terrifying plans being hatched for our future. So subscribe now to The Pivot. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.